sermon series right now, whether you come in for the first time or you've been here all along the way, doesn't matter. Each week is not necessarily connected to the previous weeks. We're working through a sermon series entitled, I Wish Jesus Hadn't Said That. And the series is based on the premise that not everything Jesus said was easy to swallow. Not everything that Jesus said would make it into a fortune cookie. That he did say some things that are really palatable for us. Things like, judge not lest ye be judged. Uh, Ask and it will be given to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow. These are easy to swallow statements that came out of the mouth of Jesus. But Jesus also said some things like love your enemies. Things like deny yourself and take up your cross. Things like no one comes to the Father except through me. And I've said this for weeks now. If Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, which a lot of people profess him to be, then we can treat the Bible like any other book that we've read along the way. And we can highlight what we like and we can rip out the pages that we don't like. But if Jesus is more than just a good teacher, if he is who he says he is, namely God clothed in flesh, then we've got to respond differently. And in fact, Jesus never claimed to be a good teacher. If you read the Bible, you see that Jesus claimed to be able to forgive people's sins, Matthew chapter 9. Jesus claimed to be able to grant people eternal life, which is pretty crazy if you're just a mere man. John chapter 10, Jesus claimed that if you've seen him, you've seen the Father, God the Father, John 14. That if Jesus isn't God, he's crazy. He's either a raving lunatic or he knows exactly what he's doing and he's the true father of lies. That it's actually more honest, I've said this before, more intelligent, more academic of you and I to say that Jesus was the cult leader of his day rather than to say that he's just a good teacher and nothing more. That it's more honest, more academic, more intelligent of you and I to say that Jesus is the true father of lies than to call him merely a good teacher and nothing more. He doesn't leave that option open to us. He claimed to be God. Either he is or he's a liar or a lunatic. And we've got to make our choice. And so if you're on the fence about that as you come in, my hope is that as, as we collide with each of these statements that came out of the mouth of Jesus, that uh, there will be a sensibility about you to either call it like it is to say he is a raving lunatic, no more will I call him a good teacher, or that you'll say he is a liar, the devil of hell himself, but no more will you call him a good teacher. Or what my prayer for you is, is that you'll fall on your knees and call him Lord and God, who he professes to be. And if you're a Christian in the room, my hope as a result of this series is that you and I will find ourselves bending our knee more so in glad submission to our good king, that we will uh, take in and swallow everything that Jesus said, not just the stuff that's easy to swallow. And so if you have a Bible this morning, uh, you can open up to Luke chapter 10. That's where we'll be this morning. We'll be in verses 25 through 37. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a Bible under one of the seats nearby in the row in front of you. Uh, You can open up in that Bible to Luke chapter 10. Uh, Take that Bible with you if you don't own a Bible currently. We'd love for you to have a Bible to explore the truth claims of Christianity with us. That's our gift to you. It's free. We won't hunt you down. It's yours. Um, I'm not going to read the entire passage Uh, in its fullness because it's pretty lengthy. And so what I want to do is just simply work through in sections through this text and kind of unpack what Jesus is doing here, what he's trying to teach us this morning. So if you you begin in uh, chapter 10, verse 25, this is what we encounter. It says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. 
And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? All right, now here's the situation, okay? We're we're told that Jesus encounters a man well-versed in the law, which should immediately perk our ears in context, because just a few verses prior, Jesus says two things. If you look back at chapter 9, verse 22, Jesus says this. He says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes. Scribes are those educated in the Jewish law. Okay? Jesus says, I must be rejected by those educated in the Jewish law and be killed and on the third day be raised. If you skip ahead to chapter 10, verse 25, uh, verse 21, just a few verses before this morning's text, uh, Jesus says this. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Now, what things is Jesus talking about? We don't have a, lot, a long time to unpack this, but essentially the summary would be that Jesus is talking about the presence of the kingdom of God in the person of Jesus and the beauty and wonder of the gospel. That Jesus says these things are for those who think uh, that according to the world standards, that they're not wise, that they're like children, that they come with a childlike bent, a childlike faith. And then all of a sudden, along comes this guy, well-versed in the law, a man of wisdom, a man of great understanding according to the world's standards. You see what Jesus is doing here? See what Luke's doing here from a literary standpoint? We're told that Jesus encounters a man well-versed in the law, and the man asks a really, really good question, right? Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? For some of you, that's the question this morning, right? You're coming in, you're trying to sort all this out. You've grown up in the land, perhaps, of cultural Christianity, churches everywhere. You've heard a litany of things. You're trying to sort out what's what. You've seen people uh, not living out functionally what they profess to believe theologically. And so there's a real wrestling match going on with you today. What is the gospel really when we get down to the heart of the matter? Who is the church? What is she meant to be? What is she meant to look like? And if that's you, I'm stoked that you're here. And so is everyone that calls Cross Point Peachtree City home. And, and what I want to do is, is everything I possibly can this morning to try to answer that question for you. For others of us in the room who profess to be Christians, you'd love if someone asked you that question, right? Like, we just skip right past all of the building the relationship to earn the trust, to share the gospel. We skip past all of the time on our knees praying for this person and for the door to open and all the awkwardness of trying to find a segue into talking about Jesus from our trip at the mall the other day and how do you do that. And all of a sudden, this guy shows up and he says, how do I inherit eternal life, Jesus? Right? Ball on the tee, right? Just hit it out of the park. It's low-hanging fruit on the tree. You just grab it. It's right there in your face. Let me ask you this. If you're a Christian in the room, do you know what you would do with a question like that? How would you respond? If God caused your path to collide with the path of a person asking that question, how do I inherit eternal life? Do you feel good about how that conversation would go? A guy literally walks up to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? Do you feel capable of articulating the gospel well should you find yourself in a situation like Jesus found himself in? This is a huge concern of mine in our, in our context, um, that we would be a people who profess a love for Jesus, 
a love for his church, a love for the gospel, and yet at the end of the day would find ourselves biblically illiterate and gospel inarticulate. That's a big concern of mine. And so I'm even wrestling with what does that look like? To come into this context, um, I'm trying to assess what God's doing in this church and in this community as we've entered into it. And what would it look like to help people grow in their understanding of the gospel, not just theologically, but functionally, to have your life saturated with the power of the gospel, even present tense? And, and what would it look like for us to become a, a more biblically literate community and family? And so if that's something you're interested in, I'd, I'd love for you to, to run that one by me by way of an email or a text or just tap me on the shoulder and say, I, I'd come sit in on something like that if you were going to maybe look to unpack more of how the gospel applies to our lives and and how to interpret scripture. And the, like, if you want to grow in those types of things, I would love to know that. And that may be something that we move in the direction of. Because I don't want us to find ourselves in a story like this with low-hanging fruit right in our face. How do I inherit eternal life? And us not be able to unpack that, that question. Well, as we'll see this morning, the gospel is in its simplicity. Jesus came to save sinners. But there's so much more to it than that. And you, we'll, we'll get there in just a moment. Uh, we're told that Jesus encounters this guy who asks a really good question. And from the start, we've got to ask ourselves, is this guy coming with a good motive? Is he really curious? Or at the end of the day, is, is he just looking to stump Jesus? Is he hostile toward the gospel? Is he hostile toward God? Because there is a difference, right? Um, my wife grew up with a friend group. Um, I liken them to the Goonies because they literally rode bikes through the neighborhood, and they, they did that whole thing since they were little. To this day, they're really close buds. She's closer to many of them than she, she is the friend group that she made in college. It goes way back for them. And uh, I remember uh, after a, a wedding, one of those friends got married off. We went to the reception, and after the reception, uh, a lot, uh, several of Brooks's friends decided we, we want to go to this local uh, watering hole and hang out and connect and see what's been going on in each other's lives. And for me, it was an opportunity to see who are these people, you know, to, to learn more about them as individuals. And I remember I'm sitting uh, at a table, and one of Brooks's friends comes up to me, and at the time, not a Christian, and began to ask questions. Um, but they weren't questions that had to do with the gospel, per se, with the person and work of Jesus, but they were questions that were driving at secondary and tertiary issues. And what I came to find over the course of several hours is that she was seeking to establish roadblocks, stumbling blocks, if you will, so that the gospel wouldn't have to be the stumbling block in her life. And so what I kept doing is taking her back to the cross of Jesus Christ obnoxiously and, and, and saying, we'll get to that, but we need to deal with this first. And uh, by God's grace, we actually became friends as a result of that. But the reality was is that there was a hostility about her when it came to the things of Jesus, when it came to the gospel. Not necessarily in terms of uh, her temperament, really nice individual, but in terms of uh, the way she uh, viewed, in terms of her disposition, the things of God, the gospel, there was a hostility about her. And in the same way, I believe that this lawyer is hostile towards Jesus and his gospel. I'll give you a, a few reasons why I think that's so. Number one, we're told that the man stood up to put Jesus to the test. Okay, this is the same language that you get in Luke chapter 4 when Jesus is tempted by Satan in the wilderness. Um, Satan attempts to put Jesus to the test to, to try to derail Jesus' mission. And we're told that Jesus combats the attack of Satan with Scripture. He uses Deuteronomy 6.16. It says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And yet here we encounter this lawyer seeking to put 
the Lord Jesus to the test. Secondly, we're told that this man is well-versed in the law. He knows what the Bible says. He's well-versed in the scriptures, as we'll see in a moment. He ends up referencing two Bible passages in response to, to a question Jesus asks. He's not really looking for answers. He's looking to use his knowledge to trap Jesus. Okay, It would be the same thing as if uh, James, who leads music for us, came up to you and asked you this question. How does one play guitar? If James comes up to you and asks you that question, run. He's trying to trap you, right? The dude knows how to play guitar. He's not confused on that issue. Or maybe a, a bigger picture example, if LeBron James came up to you and said, what's the proper technique for how to dunk a basketball? Don't get into that conversation with LeBron. You're going to lose, right? Ultimately, he's going to trap you. He knows what he's doing at the end of the day. We're told that this man is an expert in the law, and he comes to Jesus asking Bible questions. Number three, we're told that the man, according to verse 29, is seeking to justify himself. This is not the posture of someone genuinely seeking answers. This is the posture of someone looking to prove themselves right. This man asked Jesus a really good question with a really bad motive. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, he said to him, what is written in the law, lawyer? How do you read it? But Jesus puts the question back on this guy, right? And the guy's like, yes. All those flashcards from when I was a kid are finally going to pay off. The vacation uh, Bible study Bible drills are finally going to pay off. They've proved their worth. And this guy goes Old Testament on Jesus. Verse 27, he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, and with all of your mind. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's referencing Deuteronomy 6.5 as well as Leviticus 19.18. He just got Bible drilled by Jesus, and he held his own. I wonder how we would do in the same type of conversation. Would you be able to reference Leviticus? Probably not, right? Most of us are not spending our quiet times reading Leviticus. Now, here's the interesting thing. This guy doesn't realize that he's completely just shown his hand in referencing the Old Testament. Here's why. If you look at Leviticus 19.18, you encounter the following words. It says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. In referencing this passage, this guy is making crystal clear that his definition of neighbor has limitations. In this guy's mind, a neighbor is anyone who classifies as my people, anyone who looks like me, anyone who dresses like me, anyone who talks like me, anyone who thinks like me, and so forth and so on. It's really easy to read this story and go, this guy needs to get a clue, right? Yet, How much of our lives is spent seeking the comfort and safety of a homogenous friend group, of a neighborhood where everyone looks and thinks and acts like me, where we all own the same cars and we we talk about the same things in conversation? This is kind of a a punch to the gut, so I'm going to warn you that it's coming. This community, and I love it dearly, is notorious for keeping people at arm's length who don't look like us. We are really really skilled at doing that. And we all do it. Whether you live in this community, the surrounding areas, doesn't matter. We all gravitate toward people who, look, uh, who don't look like us. Let me ask a, a diagnostic question this morning. Um, who do you put into the category of those people? Right? We all have that category, if we're honest. What, what does that look like for you? Those people. Um, perhaps it's someone of a different skin color. That's real. Right? Racism hasn't run its course in the, in the deep south. It's still alive and well. 
If you're a Democrat, perhaps it's those Republicans. Or if you're a Republican, perhaps it's those Democrats. Or if you're an independent, perhaps it's all those other people who don't fit into my camp. If you're a homeowner, perhaps it's those apartment dwellers. If you're an apartment dweller, perhaps it's those um, lawn manicuring homeowners. If you're young, perhaps it's those older people who drive you crazy, who are just in hostile opposition towards change. If you're older, perhaps it's those young people moving into the neighborhood who are trying to change everything up. What does that look like? Who do you put into the category of those people? Because we all do it. We all gravitate towards people who are like us. If we're willing to be honest this morning, most of us, if we had to assess ourselves as a character in this story, we're the lawyer. That's where we tend to fall. He responds to Jesus with the scriptures. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And the answer, love God and neighbor. And according to verse 28, Jesus replied to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Okay, now, if you understand the gospel at all, you should be a little bit bothered by what just came out of the mouth of Jesus. At this point, Martin Luther's like busting into the back of the auditorium going, whoa, do this and you shall live. What happened to grace alone, faith alone, the person and work of Jesus Alone, what happened to the gospel? Uh Uh-oh, sounds like you can earn your salvation. What are you saying, Jesus? Why didn't Jesus correct this guy's theology? Why didn't he say, don't do anything? Trust in me. Here's what I think the answer to that question is. This guy doesn't need to be taught. He needs to be humbled. For some of us, the scary thing is not what we don't know. It's what we do know and don't apply. Jesus presses on application with this guy. Remember, the issue at hand is eternal life. Jesus is saying eternal life comes at a price, namely perfection. Live out the great commandments of God perfectly, and eternal life is yours, sir. And this is where it gets crucial for us to understand that the gospel is more than Jesus died for for my sins. There's a double truth to the gospel. See, here's the problem. If we go into the cosmic courtroom of God and we get that kind of picture in our minds, if, if the only thing that happens for us is that the not guilty verdict or the guilty verdict is removed and then we're just sent out into the world, we have a real problem, right? What's going to happen in a matter of seconds? We're going to be right back in the courtroom, right? It only takes a matter of moments for us to commit our next sin, whether it's a sin of commission, we do something that God intends for us not to do, or a sin of omission, something he calls us to do, like loving him with all of our being and loving our neighbor as ourselves. We fail to do that within a matter of minutes. All of a sudden, we're back in the cosmic courtroom of God, and we're in real trouble. We need Jesus to do more than just remove the guilty verdict for us. We need him to gift us a perfect, righteous, innocent verdict in place of the guilty verdict. Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. He says, we are accepted and approved of God as the heirs of salvation, not out of regard to the excellency of our own virtue or goodness or any moral fitness therein, but only on account of the dignity and moral fitness of Christ's righteousness. Or we could go straight to the Bible. 2 Corinthians 5.21 puts it this way. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's what Luther calls the great exchange. Jesus takes my sin. He's punished in my place. My sins are put upon him. But that's not all that happens. He gifts me his perfect righteousness so that now when I stand before God, 
He declares me righteous. He sees the perfect moral record of Jesus Christ when he looks at me because it's been imputed to me by faith. Jesus loved neighbor and God perfectly, flawlessly. And thus he has the authority to say to this man, do these things and eternal life will be yours. Jesus' statement here allows only one of two responses. And the same is true for us just as much as the lawyer in this passage. Number one, we can say, I can't. It's impossible. I must look to a righteousness that's not my own. That's the first option. The second option, and this is the lawyer's response. This is the response of most people. I can. It is possible. I just need to find the loophole. I just need to figure out how to frame this in such a way that I can make myself look good before the God of the universe. That's the lawyer's response. Verse 29, he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? If he had said, I I can't, I need you, Jesus, we could pack it up right now, we could all get to lunch really early. But this guy doesn't respond well. He doesn't want to trust in a righteousness outside of himself. He wants to lean on his own righteousness. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? Which is just another way of saying, who do I have to love, Jesus? What's the bare minimum that I can do to justify myself, to make myself look good before God? This is a terrifying thing in the context of where we live in the heart of the Bible Belt. A lot of people have this mentality that there are good guys and there are bad guys, and God loves the good guys, so be a good guy. Good guys don't drink, they don't smoke, they don't get tattoos, they don't listen to indie rock. They do read their Bibles, and and not just read them in generalizations, but they read them 15 minutes a day at least. And if you put in 14 minutes and 57 seconds, God will smite you. And we begin to build rules on top of the rules on top of the rules in an attempt to try to create this framework in which we justify ourselves and cause God to love us. That's what the do's and don't lists are all about more often than not. It's creating... Uh, this, this way of justifying ourselves before God. And, and here's how I know that. Because religion, in contrast to the gospel, leads to pride or despair. It can only lead of, to one of two places. So here's what happens. When you read your Bible and you made it through day number 87 and you put in your bare minimum of 15 minutes a day, what tends to happen? You tend to feel really good about you, Right? And all of a sudden, you feel this need. Man, I need to disciple people. I just need to grab coffee with people from time to time. And if I can just introduce them to my program, and if they'll read their Bibles for a bare minimum of 15 minutes a day, all of a sudden, it's an infomercial that you're pumping in the name of Jesus, which is really just a form of self-justification as we look down our noses at people who can't seem to implement the program like we do. That, that's the one destination of moralism, of religion, of, of these checking of boxes uh, mentality that we have to try to justify ourselves. And then on day 88, should you not manage to read your Bible for 15 minutes a day, what happens? Complete despair, right? All of a sudden, does, could God possibly love a person like me? I might need to go to another camp. I might need to pray another sinner's prayer because I'm just not sure anymore. I've dropped the ball. I've failed God. Religion can only lead to one of those two places, pride, arrogance, or despair. The gospel, in contrast, leads to confident humility. Confidence, because Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile me to God. And humility, because Jesus has done everything necessary to reconcile me 
to God. You see the difference? So that if you're a Christian, you should walk with a humble swagger, you might say, about you because of what Jesus has done for you. There's a great difference. If you're living constantly in this ebb and flow of pride and despair and can't seem to wrap your mind around whether or not God loves you, it's probably because you're like the law. You're seeking to justify yourself and not leaning on the righteousness of Christ. Let me give you a couple more distinguishing differences between religion and the gospel. Religion says there are good guys and bad guys, and, uh, and God loves the good guys, so be a good guy. The gospel says there are no good guys and bad guys. There are bad guys and Jesus who came riding in to save the day. He's the only good guy who saves bad guys like you and me and everyone else on planet Earth. Religion says it's about what you do and don't do. So do these things. Don't do those things. Make sure that you're in a constant panic at all times about whether you're checking your boxes rightly, because that's what determines whether or not God will love you. The gospel says it's not about what you do or don't do. It's about what Christ has done. And when he bled out and died, he said three words and he meant them. It is finished. You cannot add to the gospel. You can't add value to the person and work of Jesus. When you try, you just ruin the gospel. I heard a really good analogy once, and I'm going to pass it off um, to you now. It would be as though someone handed me a signed baseball by Mickey Mantle, okay? I can only imagine what that would be worth if it was authentically signed. It would be as if someone handed me that baseball, and then I pulled out a Sharpie and just traced over Mickey Mantle's signature. What happens the minute I put the Sharpie to the baseball? Completely wrecks the value of the whole thing, right? Same thing's true of the gospel. Jesus signed off on everything. He said, I live the life you couldn't live. I died your death. It is finished. Don't pick up your Sharpie of moralism and try to add to what I've done in seeking to earn the love of God. That's not Christianity. That's some weird morphing that people call Christianity in these parts, but it's not true Christianity. It's not the gospel. The lawyer asks, who do I have to love? What's the bare minimum that I can do to justify myself? Tell me what the list looks like, Jesus. And Jesus doesn't like the lawyer's question, so he doesn't answer it. Instead, he tells a parable that changes the question altogether. And here's where we get to the parable of the Good Samaritan. At this point, you're thinking, are we going to get out of here today? I hope so. That's the plan. I'm going to try not to belabor this too much. Jesus begins with a parable in verse 30. He says, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. We've heard this parable often, many of us who have grown up in the, in the church. Let me unpack it just a little bit for us this morning. Uh, the, the path from Jerusalem to Jericho was a 17-mile stretch. It dropped 3,000 feet in elevation over the course of that 17 miles, which is why Jesus says a man was going down. In comparison, Stone Mountain is 825 feet tall. So we're talking about four times the elevated drop of Stone Mountain. This is the bad part of town where you lock your doors. This is a very dangerous path that this man is going down. And we're told that the man was stripped and beaten and left for dead. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. Um, Notice that the lawyer is trying to pigeonhole who he can love. He's trying to find some identity markers. Now, notice what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't say a Jewish man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho or a Gentile was going down. 
from Jerusalem to Jericho, or a Samaritan, or a rich man, or a poor man, or an educated man who had all of his theology books, or a man who lacked education. He doesn't say any of that. He gives us no identity markers. And in fact, he goes a step further, and he says the man doesn't even have any clothes on at this point. He's stripped down. That's a way we try to identify people, right? At least if the dude's wearing a polo, we can kind of know what camp he falls into. Or maybe uh, a button-up, but it's tucked in. We know what kind of person he is. Or maybe he untucks it. He's a different kind of character, different kind of beast. We know who people are by the way they dress. That's why private schools brought in a little thing known as the uniform, right? So that we could end that type of distinguishing of people from, from one to another. Jesus doesn't give us any information about this guy left for dead. He's naked, and he has no descriptors. If Jesus did so, we'd have all we needed to create our list, would we not? Jesus is stripping us of self-justification by stripping this man of any identity markers in this story. Verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And so, likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Two men who fall into the category of the religious elite see this man on the side of the road, and they leave him there. They leave him for dead. Now, we're, we're accustomed, I think, if you've read this story often, to reading it and bringing down the gauntlet on these two guys, right? Oh, the, the religious you know, organization, the elite, the neatniks of, of re- religiosity. Um, And I'm not going to argue in these guys' favor. I'm not saying they were right. But what I am saying is I think we need to keep in mind that um, to stop and help this bloody victim as a priest, as a Levite, would have made these men ceremonially unclean. And all of a sudden we're talking animal sacrifices and hanging out outside the camp until the rites of purification could happen. We're talking about great cost not only to these men but to their, their families. It's not an easy situation here. Are these guys right in doing what they did, absolutely not. But we need to be slow to point the finger at these guys because we've all bailed on opportunities to help people for far less in terms of the cost to us. Both of these religious leaders see this man on the side of the road, and they just leave him there. Verse 33, and we don't remotely feel the weight of this transition when this word but comes out of Jesus' mouth the way that this lawyer would have. But a Samaritan... As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. See, what we've got to understand, and many of you know this, many of you have heard this before, is that Samaritans were considered the refuse of Jewish society. Right? Jews and Samaritans hated each other. When, when the Jews returned from Babylonian captivity after the exile um, in Nehemiah and Ezra's day, The Samaritans opposed the rebuilding of the wall in Jerusalem. Not only that, they built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, a a rival temple to the temple in Jerusalem. And Samaritans were also notorious for mixing paganism and Judaism with one another. So you can imagine the lawyer's gaping mouth at this point in the story when Jesus says, but a Samaritan had compassion on this guy. And he doesn't just throw the half-dead man on the side of the road a band-aid. Right. If you read on in verse 34, it says he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. If you were around a few weeks ago, you remember we talked about the price of olive oil, how expensive it is. You can imagine this comes at great cost to this man to give up oil and wine because they don't come cheap. 
And then we're told that he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Uh-oh, now we have a problem. Your animal is considered ceremonially, un- ceremonially unclean. Now we got to deal with that issue on top of everything else, rites of purification. You have to go through that whole process. Verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Two denarii is the equivalent to two days' wages. So he says to the innkeeper, here, here's two days' worth of pay for me, and on top of that, when I come back through, you just let me know what the bill is, and I'll make sure to pay you. It'd be like if you went to an auto mechanic and said, I need an oil change, but you just look at the car and you, you just decide what needs fixing. And, and you just, you know, at the end of the day, you don't have to call me to ask me if, if it's okay to fix it. You just fix whatever you think needs fixing and you just send me the bill when you're done. How do you think that would go if you did that? Would you be happy with that bill when you, when you came back to pick up your vehicle from that oil change? Probably, probably not, Right? You can just imagine the Samaritan coming back through and talking to the innkeeper. Sorry, man. This guy bought a few pay-per-view movies. He cracked open the wet bar. He ordered room service three times a day. We had to bill him for his internet use. And then there was the parking, the overnight parking. And the Samaritan's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I brought him in on my own animal. What are you talking about parking? Well, it's policy, man. We got to bill you for the parking. We just have to do it. It's just you know, one of those things for us. Costly, right? Helping the Samaritan is incredibly costly to the Samaritan. As the story ends, Jesus asks the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? Verse 37, he said, the one who showed him mercy. He can't even muster up the ability to say the word Samaritan. He just has to throw out the one who showed mercy mercy. That's how much he hates Samaritans. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Notice that Jesus doesn't argue with this guy's answers at all. That two times this lawyer gives answers that Jesus considers sufficient. What does Jesus say in response? He says, do these things. Again, the scary thing is not often what we don't know. It's what we do know and don't apply. Or in this case, what you and I are incapable of applying. Namely, perfect, boundless love. It would have been hard enough if Jesus had said, Hey, look, the priest and the Levite, they stopped and helped that guy. So be like a priest. Be like a Levite. Be one of the religious elite in the world you live in, and you can inherit eternal life. That would have been hard enough, would it not? Palestinian Jewish Jesus says the Samaritan is in, and the priest and the Levite are out. According to Jesus, the priest and the Levite are no better than the robbers, that being apathetic is just as wicked as being harmful. That hostility and indifference are both in opposition to the command to love. There is no loophole. The question is not, who's my neighbor? The question is, will you be a neighbor to anyone you meet? See what Jesus does here? He turns the tables on this guy. Jesus changes the question from what kind of person is worthy of my love? Who do I have to love? To what kind of person am I? Once we're told that there's a half-dead man on the side of the road... The focus shifts from that guy to the kind of people who are walking by for the remainder of the parable. Jesus doesn't say that wounded guy, he's your neighbor, right? We, we often take this and we, 
Uh, there are a bazillion. You can just Google it, Good Samaritan, and organizations pop up left and right. And the idea is, you know, uh, love people, you know, as your neighbor. But the reality is that's not what Jesus says. He says, are you a neighbor? Who proved to be a neighbor to that wounded guy is Jesus' Jesus's question. Jesus calls us to the impossible. He calls us to care. He calls us to love without bounds, without limitations, without loopholes. Jesus calls us to something that you and I cannot do in our own strength. In fact, the very command to do this is absolutely condemning. That's the whole point. Jesus is not saying, hey, here's the takeaway. Go be about social justice and eternal life will be yours. Go buy a pair of Toms so that another pair goes to someone else and you will make it into the kingdom of heaven. Go, go be a part of this particular movement. And, and are any of those things wrong in and of themselves? No. Be a part of those things. But if you're doing that to try to earn the love of God, you have a real problem on your hands. That's what Jesus is saying. The takeaway is not go be about social justice and eternal life will be yours. The takeaway is your righteousness will be the death of you. So stop trying to justify yourself. The great takeaway of this parable is not to go out and be kind to everyone you meet because God loves the good guys. The greatest takeaway from this parable is that Jesus is the good Samaritan who's come to rescue you and I. That he was wounded. He was beaten. He was bloodied in our place, taking our sins upon himself. Isaiah 53, 5 puts it this way. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. That he wasn't forsaken by priests and Levites alone. He was forsaken by God on your behalf and on my behalf. That he lived our life. That he died our death. And if we trust in him by faith, God sees his righteousness credited to us rather than our feeble attempts at being good. The call this morning to both Christian and non-Christian alike in this room is to look at the one who rescues sinners left for dead on the side of the road. That's the call. Does that mean that we don't seek to do good to everyone we meet? Of course not. If you're a Christian, Jesus is conforming you into his image, right? You get to be a part, uh, play a part in being Jesus to everyone you meet, everyone that you come into contact with. But, but here's the difference, okay? And I think that this is important for Christians and non-Christians alike to get because Christians tend to, to do this thing called gospel drift where we just kind of drift off of the beaten path into uh, moralism, into religion, into self-justification, even though we've trusted in Christ to be our righteousness. So this is for everyone in the room. It's to our destruction if our love and compassion are driven by the pursuit of God's acceptance. It's to our joy and God's glory if our love and compassion flow from a position of acceptance. Does that make sense? There's a big difference between the two of those. If you're seeking to do good and to love others in an effort to pursue the acceptance of God, you, like the lawyer, have a real problem on your hands because you got to do it perfectly if you're ever going to get there. There's freedom in loving and caring for others And with that being driven by the beauty and wonder of the gospel, that you are perfectly accepted in Christ based on his merits, and now you're free to go and live and to love and to care for others with no worry about whether God's going to love you based on it. It's not a merit system anymore. Grace now drives you to, to live obediently in light of the beauty and wonder of the gospel. 
that when you see just how deeply your sin runs and how deeply in need of a Savior you are, and you see Jesus living and dying for you, it changes the way that you and I relate to other people. The gospel is the fuel for compassion and love. Knowing that, let me ask the question this morning as we close. Is the gospel real in your life? If we were to go back through the, the distinguishing differences between religion and the, and the gospel, wh- which of those is the banner that waves over your life? If you're not a Christian, man, I would implore you to turn to, to Jesus to set aside the attempts to justify yourself. Because all that's going to do is leave you with a haunting question night after night. How good is good enough? Have I gotten there? Have I, have I done it yet? One of the most devastating stories that I've gotten to be a part of in recent history, one of my, one of my best buddies, his mother-in-law, is, is a staunch Buddhist. And she actually sat in services with us in Orlando over the course of a little, little over a year. Heard the gospel over and over and over again. Um, found out several months ago that she has... Uh, pancreatic cancer, and we found out uh, as of a week ago that she's got about five or eight, five to eight days to live, and even got a more recent update as of 24 hours ago that is probably going to happen in the next day or two that she's going to pass away. And, and to this point, this very moment in human history, unless God has done something to wake her from the dead, she's trusting in her own goodness. She's convinced that she is a good person and that on the other side of this life that God is going to invite her in based on her merits, based on her record of morality, of righteousness, of goodness. How do you know? I couldn't imagine breathing my last breath and just wondering if I've done enough. Jesus says you don't have to. Jesus says you don't have to leave this conversation like the lawyer did who walked away. You can trust in a righteousness that's not your own. And you can sleep really well tonight in doing so. And you can abandon pride and despair and trade that in for confident humility. Again, because Jesus has done everything necessary on your behalf to reconcile you to God and to man. That'd be my plead with you if you're not a Christian. If you are a Christian, let me just pose a few questions with you as we prepare to take communion this morning. Do you, like the lawyer, know all of the right Christian answers, yet find your heart unchanged? It's a real issue here, just so you know. That's not an oddity. If that's you, you're not an oddball in this subculture. There are a lot of people who know good Bible answers and can fill in the blanks who have hearts functionally unchanged by the power of the gospel. Second question, do you still find yourself putting people into the category of those people? I think we could all just shout at a hearty yes right now, right? The question would be, what do we do with that as we leave today? Will we as a, a church be willing to plead with God to change our hearts so that the categories of those people become reduced less and less as the gospel impacts and changes our hearts? Another question, are you more scared of what you don't know or what you do know and don't apply? See, it'd be really easy to go after more Bible answers to your demise, Far better would it be to know a few things and to actually practice them functionally in your life because you truly believe them versus gaining more knowledge and information on a hundred new things while those few go unapplied and you just add more to your repertoire, to your demise. And then lastly, do you find yourself living in the moralistic ebb and flow of pride and despair Christian in the room rather than the confident humility that comes by looking 
at Jesus and his cross. Very easy to veer off the gospel path as a Christian, right? We, we're prone to wander, the hymn says. And that's what that, that hymn writer means. We're prone to wander, to veer back into the land of trying to earn God's love, even though we know that it's been earned for us by Christ. It would look radically different for us to leave this place with confident humility rather than a people of pride and despair, and only the gospel can empower that. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E ptc.com